a lot of what we've studied here these these few weeks that we've been doing this study in systematic theology, which in fact this is not systematic theology, it's like background, undergirding, foundational work. Um, I, I mentioned a little bit about this last week, but I pray and I hope that we don't leave these Wednesday nights excited because we've got our ammo bag filled up. Um, you know, the ammo bag in the sense of, well, I've got these reasons now. I know how to use an undercutting defeater if someone gives this argument. I now know this, and I now know I, 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 no, no, no. I pray that, that, that the greatness of the things that we study would cause us to realize how amazing grace really is. When we look at things like the flood to see God's I mean, horrible judgment upon the world. And we look back on the pre-flood world that that would remind us that if it wasn't for God's mercy, we would perish just like them. For us to come away not, not filled with knowledge because Paul says that knowledge puffs up, right? Say, so well, what's the difference? Well, the difference in being equipped to talk to people about Christ and simply gaining knowledge for knowledge's sake is if I'm just gaining knowledge for knowledge's sake, I'm trying to prepare myself to be someone that people can look at and say, there's the answer man or the answer woman. But if I'm trying to learn more about Christ, then it's kind of like, I've found this, this person. I've found this Savior and this Lord who I love and who's found me in all my sin and all my shame. He's picked me up out of the gutter. He's cleaned me off. He's given me a new heart. He's saved me. He's promised me heaven. He's given me a purpose now. He's given me the ability to forgive. He's given me the ability to break those chains of the things that used to hold me down. And because he's so amazing and he's so awesome, I want to learn everything I can to try to present him to all sorts of people. In the latter part of this study, probably around the spring, we're going to get into into world religions. How do we talk to Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims or talk to, like tonight, probably someone who comes from more like of, of maybe an agnostic or an atheist standpoint. So it's not just learning stuff so we can know it, but we're, we're gaining knowledge so that we can present the only one who's worth knowing, and that's Jesus. Okay, And I, I just wanted to share that with you from my heart, because a lot of this stuff, it may seem somewhat scientific or historical, and it's kind of like, well, that stuff's up there in theory, but we're learning those things so that we can just clear the smoke um, so that people can see that Jesus is Lord. And I want you guys to know that that's my heart from this. In no way do I want this to be, um, you, y'all walk away and say, well, that was you know, impressive, or that was, that was interesting, or educational, although I hope it's all those things. But I hope that this, my prayer, is that when we do these types of studies that go a little bit deeper, that we would just understand how huge grace really is. And the only way that we'll be able to see that is to realize how great of, this, of sinners we are. So um, just with that thought in mind, I wanted to kind of set the stage on why we're doing this. And um, <clears throat> let's go to, go to our sheets here. We do a little bit of review. We covered the last three of the four questions about the Genesis flood and Noah's Ark last week. And number one, why would God send a flood? The objection is it seems like overkill. Does anybody want to take a stab or anybody have their notes from last week on why we can say God sent a flood and it was morally justified? Remember those two questions that we kind of examined about our own sense of justice compared to God's? That was a full seven days ago, I know. 
One of the questions had to do with, could it possibly be that God's sense of justice is more developed or higher than ours is? And is our first reaction to what is wrong and right always right? So we have to at least take that in consideration. Say, you know what? I don't know everything and it is possible that God could have an angle on sin and wickedness that I may not have. So uh, secondly, was it a global flood? Yes. Um, that's what the text says. And if it had been a local flood, it would have made a lot of sense for God to bring the birds to Noah because God could have just told the birds, fly, baby, fly. And he also could have told Noah just to move, right? If it would have been just in Mesopotamia or somewhere, he would have just said, leave. I'm going to nuke the place with water. Come back when it's all drained and start over. Uh, number three, where did all the water go? We looked um, last week about... And Psalm 104, remember how the mountains rose up and the valleys sank down? That's how you can displace a lot of water when you think of uh, Mount Everest, over 29,000 feet above sea level. This is just one example. And then the Mariana Trench, which is uh, it's around five miles deep, something like that. And I remember reading, uh, thanks Jonathan, I remember reading in a science textbook, I think this was eighth grade or ninth grade, somewhere along in there, that um, you know, like a, like a ball and chain, and that is not a marriage joke, a literal, like a ball, uh, an iron ball, if you dropped it, I don't remember the exact weight, but it would take somewhere within the neighborhood of two hours in the Mariana Trench from dropping it by the time it hit the bottom. And that's not dropping a paper clip, all right? We're talking about some deep, deep oceans. So, and right at that point, we had to quit because we broke the Baptist rule. We actually went over an hour, and it was like... Uh, like a long time. So that's when the questions say, okay, well, 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 that may be fine, but how does that actually work? In other words, how do you actually fit all of the animals in the world onto one boat? Ever wondered that before? Like, how does that actually work, the, the dynamics of that? Before we do that, we're going to take a little, little this is not a rabbit trail, okay? This, this is going to be a hook that's going to result, hopefully, in a knockout for the biblical position, or at least a good knock them on the ropes to, to, to take down the defenses. When we talked about when you, when you break open rock and you go down, you find lots of what? Yeah, and fossils at one time were alive, but now they're, they're dead. All right, deader than some Baptist churches at 12 o'clock on a Sunday morning, right? Okay, so, so here, here and, and by the way, I, I've got a lot of stuff on this. In fact, I've got a whole presentation. We're just going to have to hit one of these. This is like one small point that um, evolutionists have been unable to really explain fully. Okay, the big problem for the fossil record or, and I would note this, the claim of gradual change. And what we mean by gradual change is the claim that the deeper you go, um, you find the less complex organisms, which in some cases that is true. But what the claim is, is that Darwin thought that as we continue to dig and as we continue to find, that what we're going to find is it's kind of like an expansion of life forms. From the less complex, then there's the intermediate forms, and there's this animal, then there's this intermediate form, this animal, all the way up the geologic column. But there is one problem here, and it's called the Cambrian Explosion, okay? <clears throat> what we should see, if the fossil record sh shows gradual change, we should see millions of intermediate species, right? Now think of the claim of Darwin to say that everything has a common ancestor, 
and that everything that we see today came from a common ancestor. So think about all the biological changes it would take to go from one animal form to another. Think about that. Let's say, for example, from a fish to a bird. That's a lot of changes, you know? I mean, you remember middle school? You thought a lot was going on then? I mean, imagine, think about all of the things that would have to happen. But the issue is that, as we're going to see um, from Stephen Jay Gould, this is actually um, one of the most famous evolutionists he taught at Harvard. This is what he said. The extreme rarity of transitional forms or you could read that missing links, in the fossil record persist as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. You could read that as opinion. Okay? However reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. And here's what he also said. Um, The fossil record doesn't show gradual change, and every paleontologist has known this ever since that, ever since Cuvier. So we also um, have an example. This is from that course I told you guys I taught a couple years ago called uh, "History of Methods of Science." This is from a college science textbook. Okay, says quote the fossil record. The term fossil record refers to all of the fossils that have been found, cataloged, and analyzed since human beings first began to study them in a systematic way in the early part of the 19th century. Same page. Speaking of gradual change, missing links, intermediate forms, it says, and I quote, such continuity is rare, but in some instances the transitions from one species to another uh, can be documented, but there is no example given in the textbook. And here's the thing that I'll encourage you, whatever class you're taking, If um, Darwinism is grounded on the principle of gradual change, then there has to be, at least from what we've found, I mean, logically, there should be lots of intermediate forms, but why do do books give only a few? And even of those few, they're very contested. Um, Here's what Charles Darwin said on the absence of intermediate forms in the fossil record. He said, quote, Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any finely graduated organic chain, and this, perhaps, is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Now, Darwin wrote The Origin of Species in 1859. So he was hoping that as time progressed, something would be found, but um, he's come up short. Stephen Jay Gould, um, our our good friend from Harvard, tried to solve this problem of when we go into the ground, we find forms, they're basically the same types of animals, uh, with something called punctuated equilibrium. That's a... You're just thinking about that? No, well... That's a smart thought, just driving down the road. It's going to be on my final for my class. Okay. Okay, we're about to learn it. How cool is that? All right, here's what he writes. Um, and this, this actually made a little bit heady, but we're going to back to make an awesome, um, honest evaluation here in just a second. Gould writes, The history of most fossil species includes two features particularly inconsistent with gradualism. Once again, gradualism from the goo to the zoo to you. All right, Classic Darwinism. Uh, number one would be stasis. Most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. 
They appear in the fossil record looking much the same as when they disappeared. And by the way, Stephen Jay Gould was basically Richard Dawkins before Richard Dawkins was the number one guy in the world. Like this, this would be um, the Chuck Norris of evolutionists. And he died, I think, um, somewhere around 2001, 2007. So this is the, the man. And here's the key. He says, morphological change is usually limited and directionless. Uh, morphological, we remember Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Anybody watch that? Okay. Anybody afraid to admit they watch that? Okay. Right? Morph means to change to change shapes, okay? So what we're talking about here, and this is an interesting thing too, a lot of times when, when Darwinists give their claims, for example, superbugs, uh, the, the, the type of, of flu that becomes stronger and so forth, it does change, but it's still the same type of organism. In other words, you don't have a superbug changing into uh, let's say, for example, a lizard. And I know that's a stretch, but morphological change is the key. You can have changes within the structure of something's DNA, but as long as it stays the same, you can't progress to something else. Well, that's like what, when Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands and um, discovered all of these different kinds of finches and um, was trying to show an example of macroevolution, but it was really only an example of change in an organism, which is microevolution. But they still put it in biology textbooks in high schools as showing macroevolution. Right. And macroevolution would be? Change from one organism to another. Okay. Okay. Yeah, like an animal type organism, basically. So, yeah. Good, good job, Whitney. You want to take a um, good shot? Here's, here's the second. So here's what Gould says. Number one, what we see is, is not how it could have happened. So here's what he proposes. Number two, sudden appearance. That's punctuated equilibrium. Here it is. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once fully formed. You know what that means? He's, he's hypothesizing. Well, we know that, that, that macroevolution, we know that everything had a common ancestor, but we don't see that in the fossil record, so how did it happen? Well, it just happened. So what, and I'm, I'm not, this is, this is a platypus, okay? The, the, the evolutionist nightmare here. Um, so you'd have something like this, Okay. And I, some people say, well, that's not fair, that's a, that's a stretch, but that's literally what Gould is saying. He's saying that we, once again, we know. We've always got to be really careful when we say we know. Okay? Any scientist worth his salt will say we think. At least based upon right now, here is a good idea, here is a hypothesis, here's, here's what the evidence may lead us to conclude, but to say that we know. So this right here is basically, um, William Lane Craig calls this worse than magic. And I would have to agree with them. To, to say that you've got one uh, fully functional life form, let's say uh, those are two fish, but they put out some completely different animal. I mean, the kid's going to get disowned by his parents. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, imagine, you know, you're two cows and you put out a, um, you know, a tiger. I mean, how would that, that's, that's I don't, but that's literally um, the theory. Um, so the Cambrian explosion. Uh, the Cambrian explosion refers to the great quantity and diversity of life found in what is called the Cambrian layer of the geologic column. Um, <clears throat> this is from another uh, one of our friends, Peter Douglas Ward. 
a very well-known paleontologist. He is not an intelligent design theorist, nor is he a creationist. He would be uh, an evolutionist. In fact, you can go on um, uncommondescent.org, and there's actually um, an issue of Peter Ward trying to say that he never said this, but you can find his book uh, on Methuselah's Trail, Living Fossils and Great Extinctions, on Amazon, if you want to go find it, and we've got the page numbers here too. Here's what he said. The seemingly, and by, by the way, the Cambrian explosion is very weird because when they go down, they find this layer called the Cambrian. What they find is all different life forms, basically most of the, of the life forms all in the same layer. Now what problem would that pose if you believe that it's from the goo to the zoo to you? Right, right. In other words, if that, if that happens, if you've got things that are where they shouldn't be, that causes a serious problem for uh, Darwinism. So here's what, here's what Peter Ward says. The seemingly sudden appearance of skeletonized life has been one of the most perplexing puzzles of the fossil record. How is it that animals as complex as trilobites and Brachiopods could spring forth so suddenly, completely formed without a trace of their ancestors in the underlying strata. If this, this is the part that kind of got him in trouble because you're not supposed to say these types of things um, in today's academic world. If ever there is evidence suggesting divine creation, then, pure, then surely the Precambrian and Cambrian transition, known from numerous localities across the face of the earth, is it. I just wanted to touch on this issue because last week, and I know that created questions for most of us when we say, well, we look at fossils, and did those come from Noah's flood, and if so, how old? The Cambrian explosion is something um, that... Uh, causes a big problem for Darwinists. So we're going to move on. And by the way, if you guys have questions on this, I've got a lot of other notes, but we'd be here until the cows come home, whenever that's going to be. But I just want to put that, if you're ever talking to someone who believes in gradualism, say, what about the Cambrian layer? Okay? Or if you ever want to get out of a conversation, just bring up the Cambrian layer, and people will leave you in massive droves. All right? So here's the question. You can write down Genesis chapter 6, verses 19 through 22. Um, the question, how did all the animals fit into the ark? God said in verse 19, Genesis 6, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. <clears throat> I don't know if that includes Hardee's or not. Uh, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And by the way, when you look at how the story of Noah ends after the ark, namely that he survived, that all depends upon he did all that God commanded him. And I believe for us to be blessed, just a little pastoral note in our lives, we don't edit what God t- says. We say, Lord, whatever you lead me to do, I'm going to do it. And that's where blessing comes. So here's a little uh, dimensions for the ark. It was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. And the Hebrew cubit would be about 18 inches, Egyptian cubit 21 inches. So in the Hebrew, if, if now here's, here's an interesting, interesting thing. Um, 
I get excited sometimes and I jumble my words. Moses was the one who recorded Genesis. And Moses was raised as a prince in Egypt. So when he wrote Cubit, he was obviously writing in Hebrew to the Hebrew people. That's what the Old Testament was written in. We know that. But we're not really sure if he meant Hebrew cubit or Egyptian cubit. But just to be conservative, we're going to use the Hebrew. And if you have any study Bible, it will outline this for you. The boat would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. The displacement, and this would be these right here would be from the ESV study Bible. Displacement of 43,000 tons. The inside capacity would be 1.4 million cubic feet. Total deck area, 95,700 square feet. That is a little bit bigger than your bass boat, right? Um, And by the way, whoever that guy is, he's got very large forearms. Um, A cubit would be from the elbow to the end of the fingertips, And uh, that's the way that they measured things. So here would be um, using a little bit longer measurement. Probably this is the Egyptian measurement. Noah's Ark is close to 500 feet here. Um, It's compared to our good little friend, the Santa Maria, the Wyoming, the Titanic, and the Queen Mary. So that's Noah's Ark is a very, very large boat. But here's where we come to the debate. The objection. The dimensions, and here, here it goes. The dimensions of the ark would, have, would lead it to cracking apart. No wooden boat that large would be able to stay together. Now, this is a common argument, but a lot of the, um, the examples that are used are ships that have masts. The ark did not have a mast, and here's our response. The argument that says that the ark was too big and it would have broken up and wood can't contain that much volume and not self-destruct would be this argument uses examples of wooden ships with mass not wooden ships designed like a barge the ark the ark was a lifeboat not a speedboat okay the ark wasn't trying to go anywhere it was just designed to simply stay afloat and um all of this is going to be online but our good friends at the university of texas I didn't get any longhorn response. Okay. Have uploaded an incredible little document here. And um, there's, a, there's a common argument that says this is too far back for ancient peoples to have been able to build this type of boat. There's actually one example here. And this is the Tessaraconteris. All right. This is a Greek ship uh, for Ptolemy IV in the 3rd century B.C., um, the, one of the leaders of Egypt there. And this boat, we'll take a look at it in here in just a second. This is what, I mean, this is secular history. We know this. This is common knowledge. Uh, the length of this boat, which was a warship, was 280 Greek cubits. The beam was 17.5 meters. The height from the tip of the stern post to the water line was 80 feet. The length of the steering oars was 45 feet 6 inches. I mean, this was a warship. Notice the longest rowing oar used was 57 feet and 8 inches. That's like finding a gigantic tree, uh, somehow putting it in the side of your ship, getting as many men as you can, and your job is to row that tree to ram this boat into another boat. Um, Over 4,000 oarsmen, the Marines, the fighters were 2,000 
850. This is very interesting. The Guinness Book of Records recognizes it as the world's largest human-powered vessel. And here's a picture of the comparison. Here we have Noah's Ark right here, and here we have the Greek ship. They're not exactly the same size, but they're very, very, very close. And we know that this ship was built. We know that this ship was used. We have this from historical sources. The people who say, oh, Genesis is nothing but a myth, because we know that ancient people didn't have the technology to build a boat that big, especially out of wood. And like, well, we've got this one right here. And in fact, the Chinese, the Chinese junks, those things were absolutely enormous too. So just use, um, you know, just say Ptolemy IV had a ship that was um, 128 meters long. That's long. Amen? Right? So this, this, I think it destroys that argument to say that it was impossible. Um, then the question revolves into, okay, well, if they could have made a boat that big, could you actually make it big enough to hold every kind of animal? Now notice, a lot of times the debate here happens with the kind of animal. Notice that it says in Genesis 6.19 of every sort or every kind. Notice it doesn't say every variation. Okay? Here's um, an article that I I looked up just to be really recent today, and you guys can get this off the PDF online. This is from nature.com. The number, this is the title of the article, the number of species on earth is tagged at 8.7 million. You're like, 8.7 million, I don't care if those things are the size of a match head, it'd be hard to get all those on any type of a boat. Well, one thing that would be helpful for us to understand is that when God, this this is an interesting line of thought, I want you to go with me on this. Um, When God created all of the animals we don't necessarily have to believe that he created a Labrador Retriever and a Chihuahua. Why? Well, because we know that God would never create a Chihuahua because when the Bible says that God created everything, it was good. <laughs> just, just kidding if there's any Chihuahua owner. Totally kidding, okay? Just kidding. But, but honestly, we, we can look at dogs. We can look at dog breeds. And some of the breeds that we recognize almost as different species, Right? Like let's say you take a a Jack Russell and a Great Dane. Those are basically recognized as different species. But if you had some type of dog-wolf animal in in the beginning that had the biological data or the DNA material with all of that in it, you could take sick people and begin to breed dogs and end up with certain... And by the way, if you ever notice, um, a lot of purebred dogs have the most health problems, don't they? Do you know why? Because they're, in a sense, they've had a lot of the genetic traits bred out of them. Like Daisy, for example, my dog. Uh, She does not have the genetic material, the DNA material, to have long hair. It's been bred out of her. She's a short-haired, straight-haired lab. But, in the beginning, if you could have had some type of of capital, all caps, D-O-G, with all of the genetic information... Over time, people could have bred, and he has in him all the genetic material to produce all those different types of dogs. It's very possible. And in fact, there's a, there's a book called The Answers Book by Ken Ham. It's got a great argument in there. So when we talk about, um, actually, I'm going to give you, 
the considerations here about why, I think there's four here, four considerations on why we can believe that all the animals fit on there. Uh, number one, this is, this is, this is hard for us to, to grab a hold of because we're Americans and we've got all of these little categories. But when it says kinds, it literally means a kind, like a sort of animal, like a horse-ish type of animal. Um, doesn't mean that you have to have all the 400 breeds or however many there are of horses. So um, four considerations here. Insects are exempted. Okay? So it's everything that, 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 that breathes um, in a sense that we do. And if you're an insect, you can survive a flood on a, on a log or you know, floating whatever. Obviously, the fish are exempted. And that would be kind of hard to have your aquarium on a boat when the whole world is flooding. That would be very stressful. Uh, number three, young animals will be preferred. So for things, you know, even like um, gigantic animals, elephants, or um, you know, if you want to go down the road, we don't have time to get into that, but um, say that dinosaurs uh, were on the ark, because the Bible says in the sixth day that all of the animals are created. Even if you want to go down that road, you can argue that you wouldn't go find the biggest one that you could find uh, there, you know, and try to pull them out of Golden Corral. You would find the, the, the young, healthy ones who would be able to reproduce. Um, and number four, once again, it's the kinds. I would definitely make this note to help you, you know, when you read the text, understand it. It's a basic animal type, not every single variation. Any, any questions right, right here before we move on? I've been going pretty, pretty fast here. Um, <clears throat> this, is a, this is an article that we've got, got linked here as well. Uh, John Wood Morap. We've got a lot of hard names tonight, right? Why don't, like, why don't we just have the guy named John Doe and we can pronounce his name? Um, how many animals were on the ark? Uh, John, we'll say John, estimates about 16,000 kinds. What is a kind? The designation of kind is thought to be much broader than the designation species. Even as there are over 400 dog breeds, all belonging to one species, Canis familiaris. So many species can belong to one kind. Some think that the designation genus may be somewhat close to the biblical kind. Very cool, right? Okay. Nevertheless, if we, even if we presume that kind is synonymous with species, there are not very many species of animals, birds, amphibians, and reptiles. The leading systematic biologist, Ernest Mayer, gives the number at 17,600. Allowing for two of each species on the ark, plus seven of the few so-called, quote, clean kinds of animals, plus a reasonable increment for unknown extinct species, it is obvious that not more than, say, 50,000 animals were on the ark. We have the square footage displacement in there. It was like 1.4 million square uh, feet. So with over 1,200 scholarly references to academic studies, Woodmorap's book is, quote, a modern systematic evaluation of the alleged difficulties surrounding Noah's ark. And so we've got the information here. If you guys want to go look that up, it's very, very, very fascinating. Um, so another question is, how did Noah and his family feed and water all the animals? If you can fit them, how do you feed them? Number one, it would be uh, long-term zoo care versus emergency care. A lot of times when we think, well, how would you take care of those animals, we think of how you'd take care of them in a zoo, right? 
wash them down, comb them, talk to them, um, give them whatever. But this would be in a case of emergency care just to keep them alive. In other words, no grooming. Number two would be storage of food near each animal or uh, self-feeders. You can do this. You don't need machines. You don't need electricity to do this. Just store the food uh, on top or by the animals. Number four would be watering through bamboo piping. The Chinese have done this for thousands of years. This wouldn't have uh, been a problem to do that. And also, this to me, number five, is the most interesting aspect of how they took care of the animals. And it says, animals often go into a state of semi-hibernation during natural disasters. Say, well, what about before the disaster? Isn't it interesting that before a lot of times natural disasters hit, animals kind of know what's wrong? You ever notice that? Heard stories about that? Especially back in uh, Indonesia, they say a lot of the animals kind of left the low-lying areas and went to high ground if they could find it. I think this is interesting in one sense because the Bible says that Noah, God didn't command him to go out and capture all those animals, but it says that God brought the animals to Noah. God put the animals in the ark, and if um, they are confined, which they probably would have been, in some type of cage or contraption. They would have known that something's wrong. You're on a boat. The fountains of the deep break forth. I mean, it's raining for over a year. They would have gone into some type, probably, good argument could be made, for they could go into some state of semi-hibernation. If an animal is semi-hibernated, if you ever notice an animal's not feeling well, something's wrong, the animal kind of just goes and curls up. They don't need a lot of attention. They don't need care as much. So you could make the case that because of what was going on outside the ark, it made the workload a little bit easier in the ark. Uh, Number six, the assumption that animals needed specialized diet. Um, We don't know if animals then needed everything that they need now. Um, Just This this is something that I can't prove, and I would never um, advocate this necessarily, but um, in the beginning, God did not create Adam and Eve to be meat eaters, okay? It was just, they were vegetarians. If you know anything about vegetarians, it's pretty hard to get enough protein. Like the, especially vegans and vegetarians, they've got to really work at it to make sure that they're going to be overall healthy, strength-wise, not just digestive-wise. It very well could be that when the flood came, that there were certain things that existed then that grew out of the ground that would be basically protein-packed. Um, type of foods that God later needed to replace by allowing them to eat meat. Once again, that's somewhat of an argument from silence, but I'm saying that we can't preclude that, especially... The same thing as God fed the people in the desert, it could have been bad. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Once again, I can't can't prove that either way, but it's uh, it's definitely an interesting interesting thought. but I, I think manna is Krispy Kreme donut, so I, but I can't prove that either. But I'm sure it's in the Hebrew somewhere. Um, and then the question is, what about the cleanup? You would have hated to be Noah's kids, right? You know, shore time, you know, Shem, go to the elephants. So this would be um, one of the ways that they could have been very efficient in their cleanup of the animal. In fact, I read in one, I think it was um, John Woodmerap's article, that there could have been, from what we believe to be that many animals in the ark, over 12 tons of waste per day. 
If, the, if they were in full um, operating procedure and not in some t- state of semi-hibernation, you could have had slatted floors or sloped floors in, emptying into a manure gutter or a pit and something like this, which is what you find sometimes in pet stores if they actually do their job. You say, okay, well, if it emptied in the pit, how do they actually dispose of it? And this is very, very interesting. Um, well, actually, before we get to that, this right here is just a, a diagram uh, from our friends at Answers in Genesis of what they believe the ark to be structured uh, like. And that is an impressively large boat. Uh, and this is, this is, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but this is a, a project that's going to be, I believe it's the, the start date is 2014. Uh, Answers in Genesis and their headquarters there in Kentucky, they're raising funds right now uh, to build a full-scale Noah's Ark. And it's supposed to be, a, a, and actually the state has allowed them to do something with the tags, get a little break there to increase tourism. But that, when they finish this, that would be an amazing thing, regardless if a person believes in Noah's Ark or not, just to see something like that built. I read that a man in Holland has already built one, and he will be taking it to the, what is it? Oh, so this is like an actual floating ark. Right. Oh, wow. You build it in a hall. Himself. Wow. So we'll see whenever the Olympics come about. Okay. <laughs> Clear the harbor out on that one, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. I have to have to check that out. Nice. Um, <clears throat> number three here would be the possibility of a moon pool for vent. We always run out of time for ventilation and waste disposal. And uh, let me let me hop on here. I wanted to show you guys this web page. connection in here. But basically what a moon pool is, and I don't think that I have a picture on here. Now that's going to, that's, that's great. That's going to be a great <laughs> lame joke. Just hold on. That's going to be awesome. Um, but what a, what a moon pool, most of you know what that would be. It would be something like a hole inside the ship which would act um, as a piston when the waves come. You can have a slat here, and when the waves come um, it's basically an exhaust to keep the air flowing. And I'm not even trying to make a joke, but when you think about it, if you have a cargo type of barge with animals, you could develop dangerous levels of methane gas. Okay, So, once again, we're, we're not saying that that was in there, and there's some other stuff. If you guys want to go research, you can just, I mean, blow the internet apart on research. We've got this thing filled. Like, this thing has just as many links as dumb things are in some of the bills that Congress passed, all right, in the last few years or whenever. But, um, but there, that, that would be one way that you could actually have like some type of a ventilation system uh, without having to be uh, ha- without having to pay Appalachian power. So, um, and then the biggest question, whoops, uh, that most people are thinking about: what about the woodpeckers? <laughs> well, you would definitely want to keep the woodpeckers in their cages, right? <coughs> okay. I love stuff like that. I really, especially with uh, serious friends. So once again, there's that um, that article, and um, I want to fast forward here. To um, there's just so much good stuff that we could we could go over, but I want to bring this 
Noah's Ark thing to kind of a, a summation with this last slide here after the Tower of Babel. Boy, that's an interesting discussion when we just don't have time. Isn't that sad? Guys, just want to go for go hardies. Okay. Here are the lessons I believe that we can, I would, I would encourage you to take these down as notes. Um, these may seem somewhat basic, but whenever we examine Noah's flood, the ark, one thing that we can come away with is that sin, rebellion against God brings judgment. It just simply does. Because God is holy and God is just. So we can use this in our own life to say, Lord, I want to be close to you. I want to love you. I don't want your judgment. I want your, I want your grace. And also to understand that the lost world, they may offer intellectual objections, but the, at the seed of it, it's, it's a moral issue. Um, number two is that God provides a way of escape. Amen? And you see God providing a way for people to be saved. Even though it says that the wickedness in Genesis 6 was basically uh, to the point that God says, you know what, <clears throat> this causes me... And, I'm going to open up. We're going to have to open this up and then close it really quick. Well, question, does God change his mind? No, God does not change his mind. Well, why does the Bible say that it repented God, that he had made man? Well, what it means is that sin affects, uh, in the sense, God has uh, his perfect will, his perfect nature, and that sin is against who God is. So when sin is committed, God responds in an appropriate way. But once again, I think I just opened up far yeah. So would we assume then that Noah and his family are the only ones worthy of surviving it? Um, I don't know if we can say worthy, because um, I don't know if any of us are ever worthy. It did say that Noah was a just man, a righteous man in his generations. Um, but I think what we can what we can say is that they were the only ones who listened. Um, and then you, we can also make the argument of, well, that's, that's a godly family. But then again, um, then again, Lot, right? his daughters, you know, other people didn't listen to them. So, yeah, I think it's a great, a great incentive for, number one, showing the necessity that God does provide a way of escape and that he will accept, right, those 120 years. And we didn't even get into the issue of are those literal years or not, but we maybe can do that another time. But, um, but yeah, God definitely provides a way of escape, and, and they took it. Is that kind of some, okay, yeah. See, this, this is, yeah, so much. All right, number three, this is finally, uh, God takes murder and violence seriously. Um, that is why God sent the flood. People talk about the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. God specifically says violence. So God takes the premeditated, um, unjust taking of human life to be very serious. And I think that for us as believers who follow Christ, the application here would be very, very easy to make in the sense of, in the sense of abortion. Okay, God takes that very, very serious. And so I think that through all of this, we can understand that sin brings judgment. God provides a way of escape and to allow people to know that Jesus can save. And I would encourage you, especially if you know of... a. Um, of an unwed mother who's pregnant, or she's, she's soon to, to give birth, to talk to her, let us know how we can help and we can save a life. But, um, you guys have any questions before we, before we close? Or too many that... Okay. And once again, um, these, these discussions that we have and these issues are to get us thinking, to get us researching, and a lot of times the things that we can't prove 100%, 
those should never uh, cause us to rock from the things that we do know. We do know that we're sinners. We do know that Jesus saves. And we do know that He's coming back again. And we know that His Word is truth. So, based upon that, we can delve out into these areas to try to reach other people who may not even believe that the Bible is true. But um, you guys keep up the good work. And I think that we'll close with this, and I promise. That whenever you talk to somebody, especially about these types of issues, let it be that they sense your humility and they sense your love for them as a person, not trying to be the intellectual superior, not trying to show how you know more than they do, but that they would sense in their spirit and their heart that this person cares about me. Even if you let them go off on you, even if they're not willing to talk, let it be that, that, that your, your love um, would be the thing that definitely wins the day. So let's pray. And uh, yeah, Fred. Okay. All right. Thank you. Father, we thank you for your word and how it is truth. And I pray, God, that you would help us through these studies to just have a renewed confidence uh, cognitively, intellectually in your word. But Lord, we, that would never um, replace just the heart, passion, and devotion that we should have for you and that you promised to give to us if we would only seek you. I pray that you would reward my brothers and sisters who've taken time out of a, a busy work week to come here and study. And I pray, God, that you would use this to bring men and women to yourself in salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.